Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Our business is getting out of hand in legislating their employees' use of social tools like Twitter and Facebook. In fact, are social networks themselves getting out of hand? Do we have too many friends? And will the next move be to more private and internal social networks? And should B2B marketers have a mobile strategy? Those are three of the topics we'll discuss on this week's episode of the B2B Social Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Paul Gillen here with Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles. Hi, Eric. Hey, guys. And joining us today is Chris Boudreau the founder of Social Media Governance and the senior VP at Conversia. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Eric, uh, social media policies, there's been quite a, quite a bit of news stirring in that area recently. It's one chapter of our book is about social media policies. And, of course, Chris has assembled the, uh, the mother of all, uh, of all uh, databases of social media policies. So this appears to be a hot topic right now. Yeah, and I'm I'm re- I'm excited to have uh, Chris here to talk about this. I um received an email from Erica Klein, uh, who's vice president of digital sales for a company called Target Spot, and she uh, before that uh, handled um, digital sales for Reuters, and before that actually, well, she worked at Washington Post. Before that, she was actually my first assistant, and when I was at Rogers and Cowan, which is a PR agency, and um, so I checked out the story, and uh, basically, um, uh, it was a story by Stephen Greenhouse of the New York Times. And uh, in the story, uh, he said that the National Labor Relations Board has threatened to sue Reuters for reprimanding an employee for using her Twitter account to publicly criticize the company. Um, The employee, her name is Deborah Zabarenko. She is the environmental reporter at Reuters, but she's also the representative of the newspaper guild there. And she posted the following tweet as an at reply to a Twitter's – to a Reuters corporate Twitter account. So here it is, quote, uh, one way to make this the best place to work is to deal honestly with guild members. So that was the tweet. And apparently she received a call from her supervisor um, who said that her public critique could damage Reuters' reputation. Now, according to the National Labor Relations Board, which tipped off Greenhouse through an anonymous source, employees have the right to engage in a public dialogue, however critical it may be, to improve their working conditions. Uh, Now, a Reuters spokesperson who was quoted in the New York Times story replied by saying that the company has a social media policy. Um, Now, I checked out that social media policy, a very good policy if you're a reporter looking for guidelines of how to use social media to do your job as a reporter. But I found nothing in there that applied to how to use social media for internal communications or this type of thing. I sent an email off to Aaron Kurtz, who is the uh, head of publicity at Reuters. Asking for clarification, she has not responded. I also invited her to participate in this call. Um, if she does respond, I will update this um, uh, this listeners with uh, a post in a future um, episode. Now, I spoke to the uh, person who handles PR for the NLRB, and she said that no complaint has been filed. And um, you know they're not going to talk about something like this until a complaint has been filed. According to Greenhouse, though, the NLRB has been known to threaten legal action as a way of forcing an out-of-court settlement. 
Um, the NLRB is actually a U.S. government agency. Um, now, the issue um, of whether or not employees can publicly criticize their employers via social media has never been tested in a U.S. federal court as far as, as, far as I'm aware. Um, but Greenhouse did note in his story that in November 2010, uh, Connecticut Ambulance Company settled an out-of-court um, uh, complaint with the NLRB for firing a worker who posted a Facebook status update, which was critical of her supervisor. Um, and the amount of that settlement was not disclosed. But, you know, these two incidents, the incident with the um, ambulance company and the incident with Reuters and the NLRB just may warrant uh, you taking another look at your social media policy and asking yourself, hey, am I restricting my employees' rights to free speech? Now, I actually have on the internet a, um, a social media policy template at socialmediapolicytemplate.com. And in there, there's a section on confidentiality, and it reads, and I'll give you a quote here, external social media channels should not be used for internal business communications among fellow employees. It is fine for employees to disagree, but please don't use your external blog or other online social media channels to air your differences publicly. But, you know, given the risks that potentially restricting the free speech of your employees may pose, you may consider, you know, asking your legal counsel about adding the following language. Um, workers have the right to engage in conversations on online social media uh, with workers to improve their working conditions because, hey, it's a federal right. And with the use of social networks and business becoming more pervasive, it's probably going to get tougher and tougher for companies not just to avoid developing an official social media policy but also to ensure that those po policies remain constitutional. Um, recently, Facebook has been uh, hiring a lot of Beltway folks as they redefine policy and get ready probably to argue uh, the legality of um, uh, privacy on the Hill. And um, Chris, I'm, I'm excited to have you on this call because, I mean, you are the expert on social media policy. What are your thoughts on this, this development? I think it's, you know, first, it, very interesting that we're finally starting to see some real tests of what people are doing in the market and, you know, seeing the federal government start to get involved and, and exert some influence and make some decisions. So I, I think it's going to be good for the industry overall. I think a lot of companies sometimes experience the challenge of trying to protect confidential and proprietary information and letting that effort bleed over into other things that, you know, may be actually, you know, such as these cases, protecting free speech or violating protections of free speech. So, you know, I think a lot of times when people worry about protecting confidential information, you know, it's, it's helpful to kind of take a step back and realize that those kinds of things are already protected. You don't necessarily have to have a policy to tell people that they can't disclose confidential information in social media. Um, and so that's sort of one thing that for folks to keep in mind. Um, you know, I also think that you know, most of the policies that I've seen don't actually explicitly tell employees that they can't discuss working conditions and, and you know, that they can't say things that affect reputation. Because I think most folks realize that there is at least gray area around free speech. And I think it's it's sort of the minority of companies that have tried to stop employees from saying things like that. So I, I, I'm not sure that it's a big problem for most companies, um, you know, within their existing policies. 
In the um, article uh, February 7th, 2011 on the uh, Connecticut Ambulance Company settling the suit with the employee, uh, there's a quote in there by a lawyer who served on the labor board during the Reagan administration and it's – there's a strong argument that social networks are like a public forum, an invitation to conversation. And um, the case was uh, actually the first to assert that employers break the law by disciplining workers who post criticisms on social networking. And of course, you know, in the initial stages of social networks, I mean, whenever there was an employee who misused or seemingly allegedly misused social media in some way that could be seen as um, damaging the reputation of their employer, they were often fired. Yeah. I mean, there. The simple reality is that the the employer doesn't own that data network like they own your email, your corporate email. So they really can't expect to exert the same controls because they just it doesn't belong to them. And you know, they're not unless you're being paid to interact in social media as part of your job, there's there's really not much ground for an employer to stand on when if they're going to try and control what you're saying or not saying in those media. And, you know, there was a case last year, which I think actually we talked about the last time you guys invited me to join a podcast, uh, where uh, some management at a, at a restaurant location in, uh, I think it was in New Jersey, had, had forced some employees to give up their login credentials for a social site so they could go in and see what the employees were saying. And then they fired the employees based on some of the things that they were saying. And uh, the company that own the restaurants ended up settling out of court, uh, you know, for potentially having broken all kinds of federal uh, regulation or federal laws around that. So it's, you know, the, the cases are growing that sort of prove that employers just don't own what you do outside, you know, in these publicly available social networks. And it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's getting pretty clear. Well, let, let me ask you something else because I think uh, these types of incidents, I think, scare a lot of companies from actually ha- developing a social media policy because they figure, oh, we're just going to get in trouble anyways. Better to leave it unsaid. But um, reading this uh, story here on the company settling the case for firing uh, the ambulance imp- ambulance. Connecticut Ambulance Company employee, um, it says under the settlement, American Medical will revise its, quote, overly broad rules to ensure that they do not improperly restrict employees from discussing wages, hours, working conditions with coworkers and others while not at work, and that they would not discipline or discharge employees for engaging in such discussions, the labor board said in a statement. So I guess, you know, I mean, what do you think? Do you think this is an argument that you should develop a policy or do you think it's safer to leave it unsaid? Well, I think part of the challenge is that, you know, folks are sometimes focusing too much on the policy for employees and not giving enough attention to the training for managers and leaders. Just like, you know, gender discrimination or, uh, you know, things like that where a big piece of, um, protecting the company and protecting employees and complying with regulations is training managers on what's legal and what's acceptable in your organization. That to me is the bigger piece that's missing for most organizations is that letting managers know that, you know, what they can or can't discipline people for, uh, rather than worrying about telling all the employees what they can or can't say. Um, 
And so to me, that's kind of the bigger thing that employees, that, that a lot of companies maybe aren't thinking about, but should. Boy, that and is, so that is if somebody, point. you know, if somebody gets promoted to manager, yeah, if somebody gets promoted to manager, it should just be part of their core training, just like all those other things that managers have to learn when they start to take responsibility for other people. Yeah, I don't know if this is a matter of rewriting policies. I mean, th- these issues have existed for a long time. What's changed is the scale. Uh, the fact is that people have always been able to bitch about their employers at the bar or, or, or you know, in, in a restaurant or there are public places where people have complained for, for as long as there have been employees. Uh, what's changed now is that in social networks, all of that is searchable. It's much more easily discoverable. It's shareable. And so what we're seeing is that the sort of inherent privacy that these conversations had simply because they were limited by uh, – because the access to what people were saying was limited by time and space, uh, those barriers are beginning to fall. And so the volume of, of complaints like this is beginning to rise. But I don't know that the issues are really all that different from someone spouting off in a bar. I think uh, the point uh, that Chris makes on um, uh, unlocking the true potential of social media literacy enterprise-wide is a key one because I think a lot of organizations are still looking at social media as a PR or marketing opportunity. But you know, as, as we know, particularly in the area of B2B, if it's not enterprise-wide, it doesn't work because people crowdsource intelligence. And one or two people, you know, behind a, you know, branded Twitter handle have much less impact than a community um, that's engaged and, 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 and furthering the message. So, you know, as long as you've got, um, you know, PR and marketing arguing for enough rope to be able to speak publicly and then management or legal shutting it down, uh, you're never really going to re- realize the value of social. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also that, um, you know, part of the challenge too is that folks, a lot of folks tend to focus too much on protecting from the downside instead of trying to play a little more offense and figuring out how to enable folks to use social media more effectively, you know, to advance the goals of the organization. And as, as long as, I mean, pick your sport. If all you do is train your defense, you're never going to score. So uh, that's part of the challenge or the opportunity as well is that, you know, let's go understand how people are using it today and how employees could instead use it to advance the goals of the organization in, in the ways that you guys are describing and not spend, you know, all of our time focusing on letters of the law and how do we make people not say what we don't want them to say. And the effect of that is going to be there's going to be so much more of the kinds of conversation that you want. It's going to overwhelm the kinds of conversation that you don't want, which, by the way, you cannot get rid of. So stop trying. <laughs> you know, these really are management issues. And, uh, you know, what corporations tend to do any big organization does this. They tend to manage by exception. And over the years, you get a lot of rules that are put in place to uh, to prevent the very low the very small likelihood events and these layer on top of each other and eventually organizations become uh, become prisoners of trying to uh, trying to prevent low likelihood outcomes and it, it really restricts them from being aggressive because their hands are tied uh, it, it you really have to uh, i believe you you manage for opportunity rather than manage against risk. 
in a case like this and accept that there are going to be problems like this will come up but don't put a lot of language and a lot of of, uh, lawyers a lot of legal restraints on what people can say at the very tiny risk that somebody is going to say something inappropriate yeah and and i also think it's entirely possible that a well-enlightened uh, intelligently and thoughtfully led and managed organization is going to have the occasional person who doesn't like the company or doesn't like something that happened to them and says it online. And so, you know, I wouldn't rush to judge any particular company that has people saying things about them that are negative or that, you know, is trying to kind of work through that. I think it's, you know, you could you could easily jump to the conclusion of, well, they should go talk to the person and find out why they don't like their job. Well, they may already be doing that. We don't know uh, in general. It could just be one manager who made a bad decision. Um, it's not necessarily the whole company. So and, and every company has the occasional manager that makes a bad decision. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't also then kind of rush to judge the companies themselves. I think it's it's more of just something that has to kind of become a systemic uh, capability within organizations to just like anything else of educating at educating appropriately at each level of the organization, you know, monitoring whether or not people are actually uh, doing what you're hoping that they're going to do. And when you have folks who aren't doing what you're hoping that they're going to do, you need to kind of be prepared to 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 deal with that, whether it's an employee or a manager or an executive or whatever it might be. And it's not just, you know, all about what employees can or can't do. That's a great point. Um, I, I received an email, uh, which was without a doubt the best email pitch I have ever received as long as I've been podcasting and I've been podcasting since 2005. So let me read you this pitch. Um, it came from Angela D'Arcy, and she uh, does PR for the Outcast Agency. Uh, she says, hi, Eric. I wanted to run an idea by you for On the Record Online. The enterprise collaboration space is heating up, but why now? These types of internal communication systems are not new. So what about these newer tools is spurring widespread adoption in small and medium-sized businesses in the enterprise? A recent Salesforce.com survey um, reports that customers who use chatter um, are, f- are increasing productivity with 18% fewer meetings and 32% less email. In addition, nearly 50% of the users surveyed said they could find information faster than ever before. So I saw that and I thought, wow, this is, this is right up my alley. And I called up uh, Angela and um, she got me on the phone with Robin Daniels, who's the uh, product marketing VP for Chatter. And uh, the interview with uh, Robin Daniels is up on the feed. You can get it um, and download it and listen to it if you like. And uh, we spoke about, you know, how Twitter is unlocking these productivity gains inside the organization. If you think about it, um, you know, today we use activity streams on social networks for marketing and sales and customer service, but there's nothing private about Facebook or any of those services, so we can't really use them for internal communication. So what do you do if you want to use an activity stream rather than a point-to-point channel like email or phone or a meeting for social networking inside of the organization? Because we know social networks inside the organization uh, yield these productivity gains. Um, so, uh, it got me thinking about this whole idea of private social networking 
And uh, after that, I'm listening to uh, episode 594 of uh, For Immediate Release, the Hobson and Holtz Report. And uh, Shell Holtz and Neville Hobson have this conversation about Steve Rubell's column uh, this week in, on Ad Age. And it's, he, it's about what he calls the validation era of online marketing. And he talks about the rise of these services like Path and Instagram and Beluga and GroupMe. And if you think about it, these services are very unique because if you want to communicate privately on Twitter, you can only do it point to point with a DM. You can't DM with groups. And if you want to uh, communicate privately on uh, Facebook, you can do it with a message. But again, it's point to point. There's no way to activity stream privately there. And so he starts talking about how, you know, in our arms race to basically, you know, get all these friends and surround ourselves with all this uh, you know, all this, uh, all these people following us, we've now got these networks that are so low, so loud and so constant that it's very difficult to use them for anything more than just small talk. And so it got me thinking, and I actually wrote a post about this for, um, Scott Monty's blog. And my thinking was that, you know, these private social networks probably aren't going to replace Facebook or um, Twitter anytime soon, which I think, you know, to some extent, uh, Rubel speculates they may in his ad age column, but rather, you know, are they going to open up the side of business that's more proprietary, more exclusive, these sort of customer only or customer side conversations to the benefits of social media for productivity gains? So what do you guys think? I mean, I know, Paul, you recently did a some some research on this, right? Yeah, well, I've uh, been do, just did a presentation on uh, what are called enterprise social networks. Uh, chatter is is one manifestation of that. Uh, Yammer, uh, Lithium is in this market. Jive, a uh, number of companies that are, are building social networks using a Facebook type metaphor, but for use behind the firewall, and they're very compelling. And when you talk to uh, to CIOs at these companies, they're seeing just enormous uh, adoption, enormously rapid adoption by employees because the, uh, the the value is so inherently obvious. Uh, the idea that you can tap into expertise anywhere in the organization simply by posting a question or that you can monitor keywords or, or searches. You can find people who have uh, skills or contacts that you want. And uh, you know, unlocking the, uh, the knowledge capital really within organizations that has been locked up for so long. Uh, these tools are, are doing what of their their predecessors and knowledge management is a discipline that goes back you know over 20 years these tools are really uh, fulfilling that goal of getting people to give up information that otherwise will be locked away within departments or even within their within people's individual minds and they do it because it's in the spirit of sharing and helping and giving to get and everybody sort of benefits from it uh, it's one reason i think uh, forrester is predicting there's going to be a 2 billion dollar market uh, next year for enterprise social networks, it's it's really a kind of a quiet revolution that I see going on in enterprises right now. Chris, Chris, do you have any? Uh, I'm curious, Chris, if you have uh, have done any work in this area? Yeah, uh, a little bit. So I've had exposure with those tools both in um, you know my work at Conversion, which is a, a smaller company, and then in other at our clients, and then also in larger companies where I've. Uh, been an employee in the in the recent past, and uh, you know I think to the question of why are these things being adopted, I think one big factor is just that everyone is now using social media in their personal life, so it's much easier for them to adopt it at work. And 
you know, the, the, the challenge that I see a lot of organizations have with this is that uh, I think the success of this kind of depends on a little bit of curation internally of looking at how people are using it and why it's maybe not getting traction uh, or really achieving good productivity gains and giving people some coaching on that. So, you know, little things like on Yammer, if two people start having a conversation one-on-one to one and everyone's listening to that, it can turn people off. And so there has to be somebody kind of owning a little bit of managing the factors that are going to drive the efficiency and the adoption, just like, quite frankly, if you were going to deploy SAP into the enterprise, which is actually, I think, another big driver of this is that the companies that are deploying these things have realized, you know, you in some cases, you can't just kind of show up and say, hey, here's this new cool new technology that needs to be aimed at a particular business case that drives some kind of value to get that initial buy in the enterprise. And then it can sort of spread. And I think you know, the vendors having figured that out in the last few years is, has helped drive the adoption as well. Given the, the sheer volume of data that's out there, you know, information that's parsed in smaller bite-sized chunks is more valuable than gigs and gigs because it's easier to digest in a shorter period of time. And we've, I think, become we, – we, we've gotten used to this idea of attenuating ourselves to the activity stream, dropping into the stream, pulling out of the stream when we have information in this sort of prolonged state of ambient intimacy. And – um if you think about it, you know, the byproduct of all that sharing is the social graph and what a, you know, what, what a formidable collection of information for the organization to have access to, um, this sort of byproduct of all this sharing would give, uh, managers better insight into what's working and what isn't working. Um, but we've got to get over these hurdles, the, the sort of the information hoarding, hurdle that I think most orga- most organizations have now because they are so proprietary about information. You know, they're still – I think most organizations are still thinking about information as, you know, something to be protected in a fortress. Well, information is a source of power in large organizations. Exactly. So, and you see, I think, particularly with middle managers where their, uh, you know, their, their rank, their value to the organization is tied up in the stuff that only they know. And so it's threatening, actually, when, to, to some people, when employees get the capability to easily share information with each other uh, because it, 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 it begins to undermine this sort of proprietary uh, uh, source of value that, that's very inherent in large companies. Yeah, and I think um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, – I think it's The King and I where the, the woman goes in and the king's got two subjects and I think there was uh, – a woman was masquerading as a man in a monastery or something like that and they're there before the king and he's uh, deciding what to do with them. And the, the, the English woman comes rushing in and starts yelling at the king that she can't punish them and so he has to react by much more severely punishing them than he otherwise would have in order to save face. And so there's this idea, I think, that the fact that people hold on to information because information is power is not necessarily a completely evil situation because there's a little bit of a relationship of having an incentive for people to aspire, right, to to become leaders in the organization and having rewards for that and building expertise and creating the information 
And if you sort of just tear down all those walls and then the rewards are gone and the incentives are gone to create information and to become an expert, we would lose a lot. So it's not to me an obvious problem that just needs to go away. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think, you know, Eric, you raise a really good kind of chicken and egg question, which came first, the sharing or the graph? I don't know. When we come back, B2B marketing mobile strategy. Stay with us. Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers to ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. Welcome back to the B2B Social Media Podcast, Episode 8. Uh, this is Paul Gillen with Eric Schwartzman and Chris Poudreau. And we're going to uh, talk about mobile strategy right now. And I know it's something that B2B marketers probably don't think about, about a lot because, you know, the, the decision involves so many, uh, uh, so much information, so many discussion points. And we think of mobile strategy as being about, uh, you know, coupons and, and finding, uh, getting people to, to stop by when they're passing by on the street. But uh, the impetus was actually a very interesting paper that uh, Christina Curley uh, published this week. She specializes in B2B uh, mobile marketing, and she cited some interesting examples of companies that are innovating in this space. Uh, for example, a company called Regus that has uh, – th- they do office rentals. Uh, they, it's a rent-an-office company. Wherever you happen to be, you can find office space. They have a, a mobile app that uses augmented reality that enables business travelers to quickly find and reserve office space. And they've had 20,000 downloads in six months. More than 60 per- 65% of those people have actually used the app. Uh, she has the story of how USA Today has partnered with Gowalla, uh, that location-based service, to uh, make it possible for business travelers to find relevant uh, information about where they are and about uh, business services in the area that they are when they land at the airport. And that's a, a, an innovative idea, I thought, as well. She had an example of, of Hoover's uh, has an application that can be used for prospecting, mo- a mobile location-based app that can that can tie in um, company information and uh, geolocation information for use in prospecting. And, and I think uh, it made me wonder, are there more opportunities out there for mobile and maybe uh, B2B marketers should be uh, get, thinking more seriously about having a mobile strategy? Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? I honestly believe that the opportunities in social are even bigger for B2B companies than they are in B2C. It's just that you know they may require a little bit more creativity and, and maybe a little more systems integration. Um, but, you know, depending on uh, on the business that you're in, I think that there's, yeah, you know, tremendous opportunity for for mobile in the B2B space. It's just that it's not going to be 
the same opportunity for most companies in the way that the B2C stuff is is a little more. I wonder if there's any urgency around this right now. Should should B2B marketers be looking with more urgency at, at say, having an app strategy? Eric, you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, um, I just recorded part one of a two-part series on mobile search uh, with Rich Devine of Zaz. That's a design optimization and analytics firm, which was actually acquired by WPP, I think, in 06. And uh, just some numbers here, uh, mobile search volume growth. Um, in 2009, there were around a billion monthly searches uh, being made for mobile devices. Uh, today, that number has more than doubled to 2.3 billion. And analysts are predicting that there's going to be 3.5 billion searches per month on mobile devices. And if you think about it, you know, search on mobile is completely different then search on a static device, a stationary device. If you search Google Mobile, the results you will get will vary based on your proximity. And, um, I, you know, I, I certainly think, you know, as we approach this sort of hockey stick growth uh, graph here, uh, I do think there will be a first mover advantage. And according to Rich, you know, the, the, the metrics of, of what Google's going to use to prioritize rank for mobile search is not going to be the link. It's going to be the like. It's going to be the social activity. So I think, you know, the, the opportunity of sort of getting out there now and socializing the brand uh, on a mobile site and thinking about mobile strategy and mobile search is critical. Yeah, Christine also had another interesting point uh, that I hadn't really thought about. She said that mobile devices are so intrinsic to the way business professionals work uh, that, you know, when was the last time you were in a meeting and people weren't checking their Blackberries? They, they carry them uh, with them all the time. And so if you can reach people on a mobile device, you're actually, uh, you're actually reaching them in a, in a space that's very important. What's more, uh, she cite, cited some uh, research that said text alerts are read 90% of the time and typically within three minutes of delivery. And what you, can't, you can't say that about any other form of messaging, really. So if you can get a business customer to subscribe to your text alert service, you actually have a, a, a strong tie into that person's attention. It's a good point, but I think what we're talking about here is sort of early sales funnel, early sales cycle communications for mm, non-considered purchases, for impulse purchases, because uh, I think increasingly that final purchasing decision is going to be made either offline or perhaps on a private social network, which is going to be customer only. So I think it may be a good way to sort of uh, you know get considered and build awareness but in terms of the actual purchasing decision, you know, for, if it's a considered purchase, if it's a raw material supplier, I don't see that happening on mobile anytime soon. Yeah, and I also think that the mobile applications are – there's a lot more opportunity in you know, it, it, making it part of the product or part of the services that go around the product um, – and and less in sort of figuring out how do you get people to move through the funnel, but more in how do you make the service or the product that they already bought more valuable. But I guess I actually I just had a thought. Um, you know, if a, if it was a raw material supplier that was giving you something for your manufacturer that was heavy, where shipping was a cost, I guess proximity would be good to know, right? Certainly, there are decisions that business people make that are location based, and particularly when we're traveling. I mean, I can think of many times that I've been on the road and have needed to uh, to get something copied or something shipped or 
I've had had to get something printed on short notice, and uh, I would have actually valued a service that that knew where I was and knew what I liked and could uh, could point me to a, a vendor who could meet my needs. But something like gravel or something like gypsum or something like a plastic resin, you know, any raw material that's where weight and shipping is an issue, I guess, you know, if you could use proximity to search, I guess that, that would be valuable. And as of yet, there's no accurate way for Google to get a real good 20 on your location from a stationary device. That happens with a mobile device. Yeah, but I, I think we're we're kind of following into that pattern that, you know, the mobile uh you know, the B2B mobile use cases become, you know, more edge cases or you know, less applicable to lots of companies and lots of industries relative to a B2C. And and that's kind of the challenge and that's why it takes a little more understanding of the business and a little more creativity around how you're actually going to you know, create the value or uh, either for the company or the customers or both. Um, and it's just not as straightforward as saying, well, if you sell any consumer product in a physical retail, then you want people, you want to show up when people search for that project on their iPhone or that product on their iPhone. Like you can just say that and it's going to be 99% of the time true. And you can kind of walk into any retail company and, show them whether or not they pop on local search and say, you need to do local search engine optimization if you don't. And it's just, it's not that sort of blanket truth for B2B use cases, I think. If you're interested in our two-part series on mobile search strategy, you can get those here on the feed. Chris, what's up with you these days? Um, How are things going at Conversion and what's going on with uh, uh, social media governance? Uh, well, Conversion is is booming. We are hiring. So if anyone has a passion for social uh, and wants to work at a growing company, let me know. Um, social media governance, you know, that's that's still sort of my personal presence on the web, and uh, you know, still kind of collaborating with the the online community to maintain some of the resources that are there and 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 keep it a healthy, breathing resource. Um, so you know, it's it's good to kind of stay in touch with uh, the broader community through that. Paul, what's up with you? Well, uh, let's see. I'm beginning to to get back into the swing of, uh, of traveling and getting some, uh, uh, doing some speaking and some uh, some uh, seminars and training. And I've got I've got one I'd like our listeners to know about, which is uh, the B2B Social Media Boot Camp in New York City on June 17th, which is uh, sponsored by PRSA. And uh, I'll be there on Friday, June 17th, a full day of training in uh, strategies and tactics for effective B2B social media communications. The PRSA is really uh, uh, putting its, uh, starting to expand its footprint in this area and serve the needs of B2B social marketers and uh, delighted to be, uh, to be part of it. So we'll have a link in the show notes. I guess uh, I should have mentioned to you guys that uh, at the May School of WAM in Chicago, uh, I'll be speaking with uh, Susan Emmerich and Bill Chamberlain of IBM around some lessons that we've learned through enabling the social workforce at IBM. So, uh, you know, if folks want to learn some some of the things that have been developed at IBM around B two B social workforce enablement and uh, especially in customer and prospect facing uses, uh, um, we'll be sharing some of those things. And I will be bringing the social media boot camp to Los Angeles. I do it once a year in LA. It's actually my favorite one to do. Because L.A. is my hometown, and as a Angelino, 
I love sharing my knowledge of Los Angeles. It's a great time to be in LA. It's going to be June 30th, June 1st. This is the same course that I do monthly for PRSA that I've taught for City National Bank, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota. There are 19 seats left and uh, information's at www.socialmediabootcamp.com. So that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the RSS feed and uh, monitor us on ontherecordpodcast.com. Thanks to Chris Boudreau for joining us this week and, of course, to Eric Schwartzman, my co-host. This is Paul Gillen signing out for now. You've been listening to the B2B Social Media Podcast. We're uh, co-authors of Social Marketing to the Business Customer. It's the first book devoted entirely to B2B social media marketing, and uh, we hope to see you back next time. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.